Please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark in a series that we're calling The Way of the Lord. The concept being that Jesus teaching us how to live, how to know God, how to live for God, and ultimately how to belong to the kingdom of God, which is one of the central themes in the Way of the Lord teaching throughout the Gospel of Mark. And it's a theme that we'll look at in depth this morning in a surprising way. The teaching through the Gospel of Mark chapter 4 will really take part in three separate sermons. One we started last week as we looked at the parable of the sower. And now we're going to look at two other parables. And then finally next week we'll look at uh, the way that those parables turn into a living parable in what is often called the storm of the sea in Galilee. But I want to remind you that Mark chapter 4 is a chapter dedicated to one full day in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so the, the backdrop of last week and some of the motivation for him teaching through the parables is going to be the same as today. And just to remind you, the backdrop was Jesus dealing with the crowds, the multitudes that are flocking to his ministry for a variety of different reasons. Some people coming to experience the power that was on display through his miraculous working. Some people coming to experience his power to cast out demons and unclean spirits. Some people to listen to the incredible teaching that he taught with authority that was unlike anything they saw. And some people really there just to contend with him, to make sure that they had their eye on him because they really weren't followers or believers. And so with that in mind, not all crowds are created equal. And so Jesus is going to teach to them in a way that will only make sense for those who really want to understand what he's saying. And so you'll remember he got into a boat as the crowds pushed him onto the shore. And there's so many people that he gets into a boat and he has a floating pulpit as he preaches to the backdrop of the hills of Galilee and the crowds pushing in against him. He's going to use the device of parables to help his audience, those of them that really want to understand he wants to help them understand what the kingdom of God really is. Because as he's come onto the scene, it's looking different than everyone was expecting. Uh, most people in his day were waiting for the Messiah, the Christ, the king of the kingdom to come and set things to right in ways that would make sense to their political paradigm. A country that was occupied by the Roman forces of the day, and they expected the Messiah to come and set that right. And Jesus doesn't do that. As you know, those of you who have read the story, Jesus comes to bring an entirely different strategy to the kingdom of God and the way it would be established in advance. And so he's going to answer a question that I find helpful, not only for our spiritual understanding, but also just in life. And the question maybe could be categorized or generalized as something that you've asked over time. You might be asking it about your life now. And the question is, is this actually working? Have you ever set out to do something, uh, been excited to receive something, and as you review maybe a week or two or uh, not much time has passed, and you think, I'm not sure this is actually sticking. That happened to me this week as I was preparing this. I thought, this is exactly my mindset when it comes to just being physically well. At my age, I'm now entering into the stage where you really have to you have, to, you have to be very uh, intentional with your body. So I went to the gym, and I did the gym stuff that they recommend to do at the gym. And I powered through it all, and I thought I was doing it well. And I woke up the next day, and I was like, 
I feel and look the exact same. <laughs> Nothing changed. If you've ever tried a new diet and it's like, okay, stop eating carbs, start eating vegetables. And then you, you take a salad and you eat it and you get on the scale and nothing changes. And you're like, this doesn't seem to be working. Now those are extreme examples, but it's a condition in your mind that will also apply to your receiving of God's word, accepting Christ into your life, attempts to follow him. Some of you gave your life to the Lord in August. I know because I got to baptize you. And we put you into the baptismal waters of death. And you die to yourself. And you come up into the newness of life promise, gift of the Spirit. And from August to today, no doubt, no doubt that some people got baptized are no longer even coming. They're so amiss of what the experience would look like and feel like that they're discouraged beyond church. Some of you are here, but you don't feel different. And some of you have done that and you're, you're, you're going along. And the question is, why at some point does following Jesus seem to not feel like it's working or listening to the word or going to church or trying to make changes to your approach to God? It just doesn't seem to take effect. And the answer is Jesus does not always meet you in your excitement and your expectation exactly how you think he will. And such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God comes into the, the first century audience that would receive it for the first time and looks very different. And it looks different now. So Jesus is going to tell some stories about what the kingdom of God looks like and how it is established and how it grows and how it expands because his audience, if they're not confused yet, they will be as he continues his ministry. Because it's going to include not his reign on the throne of David, but his death. It's going to include res uh, rejection. It's going to include people not following him. And so it is with your experience with Jesus. And so he's teaching about the kingdom of God in stories. And this is how he starts, verse 26. The kingdom of God is, this, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout out and grow, he himself does not know how, for the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come." So we have our first parable. We'll look at two parables and a conclusion in our time in the Word this morning. The first parable is in response to people wondering how the kingdom of God grows and is established. And to do that, again, like he did with the parable of the sower, he uses a story about agriculture. The kingdom of God, remember, is a concept that really is, is other worldly. It's outside of heaven. It's or outside of earth from heaven. And he's going to tell a story to bring it down to earth so that we can understand it. Because it's not something that we have a clear mechanical definition from in the word. Jesus always gave it to us in ways that we could understand by looking at something else. And I'm grateful that he uses agriculture. It, it works in all generations, in all cultures, and in all times. We can all consider the way God makes something grow from the earth. And I'll also point out that this is, we've gone from last week, maybe the most popular parable, the most well-known parable of the sower. In fact, Jesus says the parable of the sower helps you understand all other parables. It's like the chief parable. And now we come to the most obscure. 
Last week, I was confident that many of you have heard the parable of the sower. This week, this is a parable that gets a lot less airplay. In fact, the Gospels only give us this parable through the Gospel of Mark. Matthew doesn't mention it. John doesn't mention it. Luke doesn't mention it. And yet, in the Gospel of Mark, we find a picture and a principle in creation that helps us wrestle with the question, what do we do when it feels like nothing's happening? Jesus says, here's how you can think about the kingdom. The kingdom of God. God reigning supreme on earth as it is in heaven. Ushered in by his son and expanded through his people. How do we understand that? Not by looking to the kingdom of Rome or Egypt or any other political power. Jesus says if you really want to understand God's kingdom, think about a principle of creation. There from the beginning of time, there at the end. And he says it is like a man who sows seed on the ground. So before we try to help, try by the power of the Holy Spirit to understand the parable, let's just take it at the face value. Someone goes out and throws seed, just like last week. They broadcast it. It lands on many different types of soil. And what happens after the, the sower sows his seed? It says then he sleeps by night and rises by day. And the seed should sprout and grow, and he himself does not know how. So this was especially true of the day that Jesus spoke into. It's probably mostly true now that unless you are studying botany at a university level, when you throw seed or if you ever plant something, you probably don't have a real working understanding of what's happening below the surface. Jesus says he sows the seed and then he goes to bed and he wakes up and he lives his life day by day by day. He sowed the seed, and there's not much else he can do other than trust that God is doing something with that seed in a subterranean way that he really doesn't understand. It says, how the seed comes out of the earth, he doesn't know. And that's pretty much true of us. How plants grow, how you get your salads and vegetables to sprout out of the earth, although you have a working understanding, it's still pretty miraculous. And I love that I have kids that are in the stage of childlike faith that have been given the assignment to plant a little petri dish seed, put it by the windowsill, put some drops of water, and then wake up in the morning, day by day by day, and in one of those mornings they wake up and a tiny little shoot is out of the ground and they're like, it's working. They don't know how, but it's working. It's just coming out of the ground. By the miracle, by the design, by the power of God, he makes food come out of the ground. Amen? All right, class dismissed. Praise God, enjoy your salad. So he doesn't know how. We're not going to apply, we're not going to try to take any spiritual truths yet. Let's continue down just the practical understanding of the story at face value. Verse 28, for the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, now listen to the process of growth. There's sowing, and then there's growing. So the blade shoots out, but don't pull the blade, because the blade then has to turn into more growth so that a head can grow. After that, the full grain, and when the full grain has been completed, what happens? When the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So from sowing to harvest, there is a work of God as the farmer sleeps at night, that causes something to come out of the earth apart from his knowledge and totally up to the power of God. That's true of agriculture. And now we say, going back to the beginning of this, this is a parable. This is a, a earthly truth that gives us a spiritual understanding. What does this tell us about the spirit of God, the kingdom of God? It says that 
when the Spirit of God sows the seed of his word, when the movement of God is planted into a community of people, when something is started by the power of God, the only increase comes because of the providential guidance and superintended power of God. We are here because God gave us the grace to hear the word with ears to hear. And then as the word was planted into your heart, as you slept, you went about your business, you went to bed and you woke up, little by little with ways that you could not observe, the word of God took effect. And this is true of physical growth as well as spiritual growth. So I already mentioned I have kids. We've all probably been around kids that are at one age. You step away from their life for a week or a month or a year, and all of a sudden you're shocked because what's happening while you were away? They're still growing. Kids will grow when you're not looking. In fact, sometimes you, you have to turn away to see that they're still growing. I can be gone for like four days, and I come home, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, you guys are growing. Never, I never notice it day by day by day by day, but my kids are going to grow. It is as good as done. They start little, and they'll end up, whatever their DNA code says will be their final height, and little by little, through their sleep, God is growing their tiny little bones until their full growth. And it is true of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has been planted into our world. And the kingdom of God, we have the advantage now of a 2,000-year perspective to say this tiny little seed that was planted on the shore of Galilee from a man preaching from a boat, talking about the power of God, displaying the miracles of God, and ultimately showing the will of God for salvation through the death and burial of his son, planted the kingdom of God, and here we are. By God's superintended providence, he has caused little farmers to sow the seed, go to bed, wake up, and more and more and more of the kingdom comes out of the ground. Now, this is an obscure but very encouraging parable. Because if you're like me, sometimes you think that there's nothing going on in the kingdom. If you're like me, sometimes you've been called to do the farmer's work sow the seed, encourage a friend, be part of kingdom ministry, and you go day by day by day, and you see nothing. And what this is encouraging us to say is, don't judge God's movement by what you observe. There is something happening at the subterranean level where the fruit is getting germinated to come out of the ground, and so it is in the day that we live in. How many of you have thought, in the day that we live in, that you look around on the surface level of the world and you wonder, is God doing anything? Is God moving in my life? Is the word of God actually expanding or are we all on retreat from the power of darkness that seems to be running rampant in our world? And so we remember the parable of how the kingdom starts, how it grows. It starts by the power of God's word being planted and then it continues by God and God alone bringing increase. So we find a couple comforts for this. One, somewhere inside each one of our hearts, we think that successful kingdom power and work can be attributed to some amazing worker of the field. We often, if you're like me, look to where God has moved in the past or where God may be moving now, and you see an amazing movement of worship bands. Man, that worship is so good, and, and these songwriters are so gifted, and they're, 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 they're singing these amazing songs, and man, God is really responding to their songs. 
or you hear amazing preaching and you think, man, if I could just get my friend to hear that preaching and if the, if the word was sown in their heart from that person, man, God could really use those sermons in my friend's life. And just like farming, there is a minuscule responsibility of the farmer. He works day by day. He does what he can do. The best thing a farmer ever does is pray for rain because that's what he needs. And as the rain comes, he can tend to the garden. As the rain comes, he can observe the, 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 the stages of growth waiting for the harvest. But no farmer can make food grow. And no pastor and no preacher and no worship leader and no friend of a sinner and no evangelist and no ministry ideas and strategies for growth will ever actually do the kingdom's work. The best they can do is break up the ground so when the seed is sown, it can be received on soft soil and then God does everything else. And here's an encouraging reminder that this is not something that maybe we feel uniquely for our time. This is something that from the first century to the first church plants all throughout time, people sometimes wrongly attribute people to the movement of God. The Apostle Paul plants church. He, does, he plants churches, he establishes them, he passes them off, and then he checks in on them through letters. It's kind of how the movement kept going. He was a planter. And one of the churches he planted was a church called Corinth, or a church in Corinth. And one thing that happened in the very first century that, that he had to deal with that we read as a letter to us that was a letter to them was this questioning of which worker of God was to be most honored and respected as the one that gets the credit. And those people had some great ones to choose from. They could choose from Peter, the chief apostle, who was the one who brought in the, the big, the, the, the big uh, fold of people on Pentecost, some people said, I'm with Peter. That guy's an amazing preacher. There was Apollos, who was this silver-tongued, eloquent speaker. And some people said, Apollos, man, when he preaches, the kingdom shakes and moves and people come in. Some people said, I'm with Paul. That guy's a planter. He starts the work. He's the OG. That's who I'm with. So Paul writes a letter to remind us what this parable is telling us. This is what he says to the church in Corinth in chapter 3. He said, listen, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters anything, but God who gives the increase. So our only hope, which is all the hope we need, is that God is on the move in ways that we do not see. Now, we sit back and we live in a world that we wish was more flashy and observable, and we, we wish we could say, well, there's where God's kingdom's moving because that church is awesome, and, and, and there's where he's moving because there's, there's people just flocking. But all we can hope for is the God who works in ways that we don't always observe, bringing an increase that only he can bring. That's our only hope, which is why it is not just mere tradition of liturgy that we come into church and we praise his name as we did. Beautiful. There's parts of me that when I hear worship like we had this morning from Seth and Gloria and the band of people that God has risen up to give him glory, and I just think, let's just end it there. We just praise the king. His name will be worshiped forever. But we do that because what that is reminding us and telling us and posturing is only God gets praise. Only God can do the kingdom work. God gives grace to allow us to 
to farm. It's like we're, we're throwing little seeds and tending to tiny little gardens. But the encouragement is, is God is on the move whether you see it or not. And God is going to move in our time like he always moves in ways that, as it says, the farmer doesn't know how. He doesn't know how the thing comes out of the ground. And so we think about the world we live in. And I want you to think about the most mysterious ways that God could be on the move. How could God reach into our culture in the ways that it seems so far from God? How could God reach into a, a, a movement of sexual ethic that's LGBTQ rainbow community and win people for the gospel to make them agents of his glory? I don't know. But there are some people who are called to that ministry that have to just be faithful and trust that God is moving in ways that you can't always observe. How will God heal a divided nation? How will God heal a church age that seems to be retreating and deconstruction and deconstructing and losing ground in the places that God has put us? I don't know. The farmer waits, and day by day by day, Something's happening underground that he cannot observe. And then one day he wakes up and he sees a tiny shoot coming out of the ground. And he doesn't know how. So our God, our God speaks in parables so that we would understand and believe in the mysteries of his kingdom. The reason that parables were taught is because people did not want to believe in the God that worked in mysterious and miraculous ways. They wanted a mechanical understanding of how salvation worked and how religion worked and how the kingdom worked. And he says, I will tell you something that will point you to the mystery and you'll understand it as much as you want to. God is on the move in ways that we cannot fully observe. And just as sure as we sometimes look at the movement of God and attach it to people that are working in the ministry and preachers and worship leaders, sometimes we put that own pressure on ourselves that if God is going to increase and the kingdom is going to expand and you're going to grow and thrive 30, 60, some 90-fold, the word of God taking effect in your life. Sometimes it's like, well... When I become very studious and I learn how to set my alarm at 5 a.m. and I really get disciplined and I, I, I really learn theology, then finally I'll start to grow in Jesus. And that's not what we find. The answer is God began a work in your life. If you have ears to hear and a soft heart to receive the word of God, God has planted his word in you, and God and God alone will bring the increase in your life. There's an encouraging promise of Scripture in Romans chapter 8. You may know Romans chapter 8, verse 31, because it says, We know that all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Meaning, in ways that are sometimes unobservable, in ways that you can't always see on the surface, God is working to bring everything together for good for you if you love him. For his purposes. And then it goes on to say, be assured of this. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to his image of his son, that it might be the firstborn or the first fruit, that, that there might be a shoot that comes out of the ground. Moreover, whom he called, he calls you to hear his word, to receive his word. Those he called, he also justified. So, he gave you the ears to hear the gospel presentation. By grace, you're saved. 
And he also provided a way for that grace to be valid, justified. Your sins can be forgiven, not because of your own work, but because of his finished work on the cross. He justifies you. And if he justifies you, he will also glorify you. The work of your life now receiving the newness of life, the born-again spirit in you, will go through a process of cleansing and growing and you will go through this process of growth where at, at first you're just a shoot out of the ground learning the ways of God, learning how to pray, learning how to hear his word and read it. And over time, in ways that day by day by day seem unobservable, glory by glory by glory, you're getting closer to the day where you will be part of the full stature of the image of Christ. He is working that in you now. That you are growing in a way that someone would look at your life and say, I haven't seen you in a while, and they'd say, my, how you have grown. You don't see it yourself. But God is working as he predestines, and he calls, and he justifies. He will glorify, and it is good as done. For those of you who have taken my recommendation and listened to the listener's commentary, uh, I'll remind you of something you already heard about this passage, but this, uh, this phrase in verse 28, for the earth yields crops by itself. The earth does it, apart from the farmer. That Greek word is automate, and that's the word that we get in Greek to get us automatic. It's an assuring promise of this parable that as soon as the seed goes in the ground, it is an automatic harvest. As soon as God's word is planted, his kingdom is established, the harvest is no longer in question. And that is the assurance that we find in our day and age. If you ever think the harvest is in question, if you ever wonder if the church age is going to make it to the end, if you ever wonder if we look around and think, is this the end? Because the church doesn't seem to be in a real good place. My Christian community seems to be in shambles. My walk with Jesus seems to be shaky. It is automatic. He has predestined you and called you and justified you, and he will glorify you. Your name is written in the book of life. And there is coming. Hear this as for ears to hear, those of you who are part of the church. The harvest is coming. There will be a final trumpet when the harvest, the judgment of all of the planting and sowing and watering from the moment Jesus died and buried, was buried and resurrected as the first fruit of, of the new creation until the final harvest, that day is coming. It is automatic. It is not wavering. It is not something we have to wonder if God is off his throne and if he's still going to bring the saints gathered in the end of the age. It's going to happen. And we can rest assured that from age to age and glory to glory, the church will go through seasons of planting and sowing and harvesting until the final harvest, which will not be thwarted. Jesus says to Peter, who do men say that I am? And he says, many men have many different answers. Some Elijah, some Moses, one of the prophets. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the Messiah. You're the king of the kingdom. He says, upon that rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the parable of the growing seed. And just want you to write it down if you take notes. The word of this parable is automatic. It's going to happen. And now, we can find a word for the next parable to give us another boat of confidence 
in sometimes the hesitancy or the wondering that we have about the kingdom's work around us. And this is a parable that maybe you have heard. It's often called the parable of the mustard seed. In verse 30, it says this. Then he said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, it is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. If the lesson from the first parable is to trust that God is moving, even when you don't see it, totally apart from your ability to move his hand towards the harvest, the confidence that we find in this parable is that God is also using the very, very, very small beginning and small offerings that you may be a part of in his kingdom. He says, you want to understand my kingdom? Think about something really small. Think about something, actually the smallest seed you could possibly think of. Lest you think that his kingdom is a kingdom of might, a kingdom of many people overcoming the few, a kingdom where the, the person with the most money buys himself into the power uh, and position of power, he says, my kingdom is something that starts so, so small and grows exponentially. So because Jesus, in using parables, gives such beautiful imagery that his audience would be able to really picture as they walk these areas, as they follow him, or as they live their life, they could see a mustard seed. So I looked it up, and this is what the contrast of size is supposed to tell us. As you see in that hand is a collection of mustard seeds. They're tiny. Jesus says they're the tiniest of all seeds. Now, the botanist who is here with us is going to say, actually, that's not true. And they've been discovered that there are smaller seeds. Now, what, Jesus is not trying to make a claim about the Guinness Book of World Records smallest seed. He's using a proverbial size of the tiniest seed that most people would think of as his day that somehow does a miraculous work of exponential growth beyond its size. So as the picture shows you, that's what's capable of that tiny seed. A, a, a bush that would overwhelm the rest of the garden. A, 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 a seed that could turn into an herb that looks like a tree that could house birds. And what Jesus is saying is do not despise the small beginnings of my kingdom. As we think of his audience, he's in his boat, and you've got the people there that are thinking, if he was the Messiah, we would be able to see through military might. We would be able to see through the way that he goes into Jerusalem and establishes something that is observable and mighty. And he says, you're thinking of it wrong. The mustard seed, the principle that something small and seemingly insignificant could turn into something glorious and large. And that is true of the context that, again, we have from a 2,000-year perspective of the kingdom of God. His listeners must have heard that and by faith thought, okay, we'll have to take you at your word because we see that you are coming and you do have quite a few insignificant moving parts. You have come from a town of Nazareth that is known by being insignificant. In the Gospel of John, as people heard that he was coming from Nazareth, they said, could anything good come from Nazareth? Meaning, what? That's a nowhere place. Who would ever come out of Nazareth? 
And as he gains a following, he chooses not the Pharisees or the scribes or the Sadducees or the politically well-connected, but he looks at people who were standing on shore with fishing nets, presumably with an aroma of stench, sweat, and fish guts, presumably a lower education, and he said, I'm going to use you guys to be fishers of men for my kingdom. So he's got insignificant workers. And then he has what seems to be an insignificant plan. Because as his ministry continues to grow, he always rejected and told his disciples to do the same, the idea that he would wear a crown immediately. And he rejected the crown of gold and ran to a crown of thorns. So his listening audience of the day, without the perspective we have, must have taken him by faith to think, okay, if the mustard seed could grow from a tiny seed into an herb, this is something we'll have to believe that you're capable of. But by God's grace, we stand here listening to the word of God preach because these fishermen took him seriously. And they died for the cause. And they went through a collection of sowing and growing and reaping that we now benefit from today, 2,000 years later, it is clear that the movement of Christ that started with, could anything good come from the town he's come from and the people that he works with into the global movement of God that we worship the king living in our presence today because of this tiny beginning? It's clear that this is something that Jesus was able to back up. One story of insignificant, seemingly insignificant moments is the story of how my grandpa got saved. My grandpa got saved at the age of 89 years old. And a seemingly insignificant gift when he was about 86 years old, he got a little puppy and he started walking it just to keep his legs moving. And a seemingly insignificant friendship form when some woman who also went on walks around the same time started walking with him, and then walk by walk by walk, day by day by day, she started sharing the gospel to an 86-year-old man who otherwise was uninterested. And day by day, week by week, year by year, the word of God was planted, and little by little, it started to come out of the ground. And my grandpa gave his life to the Lord at the age of 89, got baptized on his 90th birthday. Just a sprinkling, hate to offend. <laughs> but at 90, that's the best he could do. And as the ripple effect continues, I was a nominal believer sitting in the front row, watching my grandpa's faith with tears in my eyes, seeing the power of God on display, and in my own way, having seeds planted that would grow into this moment now. And I think of my grandpa because... One of the only touch points to Jesus I ever saw before this journey of faith turned into a harvest of his life was a small poem that he had above his sink in his kitchen. And I want to read it to you now because it glorifies this process by which we stand sometimes with so much lost gratitude on a mustard seed growth in Boise, Idaho, worshiping this Jewish carpenter. Listen to the journey that this story goes on. It's called One Solitary Life. Nearly 2,000 years ago, in an obscure village, a child born of a peasant woman grew up in another village where he worked as a carpenter until he was 30. Then for three years, he became an itinerant preacher. This man never went to college or seminary. He never wrote a book. He never held a public office. He never had a family, never owned a home. 
He never put his foot inside a big city, nor traveled even more than 200 miles from his birthplace. And and though he never did any of these things that actually accompany greatness in our eyes, throngs of people followed him. He had no credentials but himself. While he was still young, the tide of public opinion turned against him, and his followers ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was sentenced to death on a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, a simple coat that he had worn. His body was laid in a borrowed grave provided by a friend. But three days later, this man arose from the dead, living proof that he was, as he claimed, the Savior whom God had sent, the incarnate Son of God, And 20 centuries have come and gone, and today the risen Lord Jesus Christ is the central figure of the human race. On our calendar, his birth divides history in two eras. One day of every week is set aside in remembrance of him, and our two most important holidays celebrate his birth and resurrection. On church steeples around the world, his cross has become the symbol of victory over sin and death. This man's life has furnished the theme for more songs, books, poems, and paintings than any other person or event in history. Thousands of colleges, hospitals, orphanages, and other institutions have been founded in honor of this one who gave his life for us. As all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the governments that ever sat, All the kings that ever reigned have not changed the course of history as much as this one solitary life. The mustard seed that started, the mustard seed that seemed so insignificant has grown into the gospel proclamation across the globe by which you have been given the grace to hear this morning. And Jesus now says, this is my kingdom. When you think something isn't happening, remember that there's a seed germinating under the soil. And when you think that this day is insignificant, and this sermon doesn't matter, and your opportunity to share the Word of God, and to seek God, and to understand the Word of God day by day by day, seemingly so small, is really insignificant. Be reminded and refreshed and renewed that this is, in fact, the very principle by which the kingdom works. The insignificant becomes glorious. Jesus died a death that seemed to be lost. And he rose again on the third day and changed humanity forever, ushering in the opportunity to have eternal life. And so now, as we think about this one as the kingdom of God on display for us to understand how it works, we also understand that Jesus says the kingdom of God is also in you. And this day is an insignificant day. It is a Sunday in October in 2022. It could be chalked up to just another day at church. And yet the word of God God has been planted in your mind and in your heart. And you are being reminded that God is not calling you to a stadium to preach to thousands of people. Very unlikely. It's very unlikely that God is going to use you to create a global missions trend that will outlive your existence. 
But God is calling you to believe that one small, simple step towards his will for your life can have exponential, glorious outcome for your life. God is calling you to believe that the word of God, when it hits soft soil, when it hits ears that want to hear, have the potential to grow in you 30 and 60 and 90-fold fruit that will impact the kingdom of God for his glory and your joy. And again, we find great comfort for the day and age that we live in. When we think of the times that we live in, do you ever, like me, wonder if what we even do matters? At night, I put my kids to bed, and I'm coin-tossed some nights because I'm tired and they're rambunctious. And I have a children's Bible sitting at the bedside, and I think, do I really need to read it? Do I really need to sow the seed of God's word into these kids' lives? And then I remember it is not by the flash that God establishes his kingdom, but it is by the whisper. And my kids, to understand the glory of God's kingdom, will understand it in my consistent sowing day by day by day. And as I shared that first service, a mother came down and said, this sermon is called the stay-at-home mom sermon. I'm weeping, wondering as I change diapers and I wait for a break in the day. And I wonder what I'm doing with my life as I pour into my kids and I try to find my rest. And I hear that it is the collection of insignificant movements of the Spirit of God in my life that will turn into something glorious. And it isn't just the stay-at-home mom. It is the husband sermon. It is the insignificant moment that you get on your knees and you pray for your family. It is the insignificant moment Then, rather than get on your phone and get right to the stock market and drive to work and focus on your day, you open the word and you say, God, I need your wisdom and it will come if I seek you. And that one small act of you on your knees desperate for God will have a glorious effect for your family. It is the sermon for every person who has been called to a ministry that seems insignificant because they all do. I made the mistake of doing the math last night. I preached to 1,000 people on a Sunday, and I divided it by 7 billion, and I don't know how many zeros down the line to tell you the percentage of people that I'm actually speaking to in this world. But I hate to say it, but you're practically nothing. <laughs> and you're in Boise, Idaho. You're not well-connected. You're somewhere in between Salt Lake and Portland, and I'm going to give you my life because a collection of seemingly insignificant Sunday mornings with the word of God will send ripple effects through our world that will reach Italy, and it will reach India, and it will reach Guatemala, and it will reach Mexico. Because God is faithful to take one small, insignificant moment of faith that I would open this word and say, God, you said it's alive. You said it has the ability to cut the heart. So God, use it. And some of you will receive it, and the growth will be exponential. And somehow, the movement of God, 20 years from now, there will be something that comes from these insignificant moments in this insignificant year, and God's kingdom will be on display, and the birds of the air will be able to land because we were faithful to not despise the days of insignificant things. You're called to ministry. You're called to your children. You're called to your neighbor. You're called to the church family you belong to. And most importantly and above all, you are called to love God more than anything else. And this is where this all points us to. He gives us these 
anchors of hope for people who had ears to hear. And then Gospel of Mark gives us this, this pulling for what we do with this. In verse 33, he says, And with many such parables he spoke a word to them as they were able to hear it. Speaking story after story, he's not breaking down the mechanics, but he's giving them these creation principles to give those who were able to hear it all of the teaching and encouragement that they wanted to hear. And then it says, but without a parable, he did not speak. Remember, the parable will reveal for those of you who really want to know God, he's opening your heart and your mind, and you're being pulled into a deeper relationship with him. And for those of you who are here to come to church and to get to the next thing, you, this will mean nothing to you. It won't change your life, and it will never give glory to God. And it says in verse 34, And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. So what do we do with these parables? with the promise that even when we don't see it, there's something happening for the God of increase to be working to bring about that harvest that is automatic. And even when it feels so small and insignificant, God will use a tiny act of faith to turn into something glorious. And then Mark says, and for those of them that got alone with Jesus, he told them everything. You want to have a challenge for the unobservable and the insignificant? Go pray. No one will see you. No one will buy your book. No one will hear your sermon. No one will think that you're a super saint or an amazing Christian. No one will pat you on your back for doing ministry. Go be alone with God. It is, in the eyes of the world, the most unobservable and insignificant thing that someone could do to close their eyes and fold their hands and cry out to a God that would take a mustard seed of prayer. You want to find something that's unobservable and insignificant? Open your Bible. No one's going to praise you for that. You're not going to get an emotional high. There's no, there's no lights. There's no haze. There's no hill song. It's just you and the Lord. And what does Jesus say to give us an encouragement of how these parables could make anchors of our hope? It says in Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogue on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. The kingdom of God is not something that will be rewarded by men. The kingdom of God growing and expanding and the confidence that we have that even in the day and age that we live in, God is on the move and he will use the mustard seed people to do glorious things. It will be a violation of popular religion. Popular religion does have a reward. People see that you're great at it. People can say, hey, you're, you're a Christian, you're a preacher. Well, that's my reward if that's all I got. People can say, wow, you're a talented musician. I see you on stage. That's my reward if that's all they got. But you know what Jesus says? He says, I say to you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you've shut the door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The only way you could ever do that is if you believe the principal kingdoms found in these parables. 
that God would actually work in ways that are unobservable. That you would be someone who believes that prayer is like a seed sown into the heart of God. And day by day by day, prayer by prayer by prayer, in ways that are unobservable to you, life goes on and you almost forgot about the harvest, and then the shoots of prayer come out of the ground. You want to see God move in your time? You want to see God move in the generation we live in? Believe that he will use unobservable, insignificant people that believe in him to do glorious things more than he'll use the people who get their reward from all of this cool branded church age that we live in. For those of you who have ears to hear, go be alone with Jesus. Find out what happens if you open your Bible and you open your mouth and you trust that unseen and insignificant in the heart of God is greater than anything you could find apart from God. We're going to finish with communion, as we do. And like always, communion is going to do something in our hearts right now to, in a way, seal what God is doing to encourage us and, and give us hope and a, a reason to trust him. And to bring you to that moment, I'll share one more passage of Scripture with you. Because as you can see, last week, two parables this week, there's something about the seed that Jesus loved to point out to help us understand how he was working. The seed lands on soil. How are you listening? The seed's in the ground. How are you believing that God would bring the increase? The seed is tiny, but it can do great things. And the seed has to die. It says in John chapter 12, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor you take the bread and you take the cup and you say, unless the seed had died, it would have remained alone. The bread and the cup representing the body of Christ hung on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. The seed goes into the ground and comes up bearing much fruit. Jesus says, follow me. If you really want to have ears to hear, you hold that communion the body and the blood of Christ. And you say, Jesus, you are the seed that died and rose again. I am a person who believes and will follow. Let's stand and worship this final song.